Morning, everybody. Pastor Phil here once again at New Life in Christ Church in Cedar Creek, Texas, and uh, uh, coming to you from our, our sanctuary out here, and uh, it's a lovely day here, and hope that it's a lovely day as you're watching this, and uh, want to uh, yeah, spend some, just a couple minutes and a couple announcements before we get into this. So first of all, we have our, our, our church website, which is nliccedarcreek.org, and there you can find uh, everything that you, uh, that you might want to know about us, and you can also find... Uh, links to our YouTube page, which you're watching now, but so uh, please subscribe that so that the page will grow. Uh, and then also like our Facebook page if you if you would, uh, for, for the same reason. Uh, we have three ways to give now, which number one through text, and the number should be up on the screen. Um, and then there's also you can uh, you can click the link in this video description below this video, and then you of course can mail. In uh, anything that you would that you feel led to to give, um, with the church's uh, mailing address will be up there. Also, if you have any prayer requests that you need to send our way, please do so. Um, we have a uh, prayer group that meets every week, and then we also have an online prayer group that receives requests, and we are we are diligent to lift those up to the Lord, and um, we just see that as a very valuable ministry, especially in these times. So uh, that being said, let's go ahead and pray and get into worship, shall we? Father, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness, Lord, that uh, the world doesn't always see, primarily because they don't choose to see, but Father, the word said it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, and that the word also says, taste and see, the Lord is good, and so I pray that you, you uh, provide people opportunity uh, through this service to taste and see that you are good, Lord. I pray, Lord, that, that chains are broken off of people's lives, and I pray that healing comes to people so that they can see uh, and know that you truly are good and that you truly do work in the hearts of, in the lives of people in this age. And I thank you, Father. I pray that you bless our time together. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you, Lord, for holding on. When I had felt my feet had slipped, Lord, you held on to me.
joy to reap with faith to sow as many see and many put their trust in the sun Praise God. That uh, last verse there, talking about dying is gain, that's... Paul talked about that in the scriptures. And he wasn't talking about wanting to die. He was talking about 
Not being afraid. Not being afraid to die. People who, people who have accepted Christ. We don't look to die, but we don't have to be afraid. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've been to, I've been to a lot of funerals, and at funerals you can always, you can always see who is afraid. You know, because at a funeral, death is all too real to people. And um, the thought is what, what happens next, you know, in day-to-day life. It's easy, to, it's easy to kind of put what happens at the end of this life out of your mind and focus on, you know, the job, family, things of that nature. But at a funeral, I can always see who is concerned you know but for those who have accepted Christ there's no need to be concerned like Paul said for me to to live as Christ to die as gain you know to to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and you know Christ gives us hope he's just that good let's pray father i ask lord that uh, you would help uh Help me to bring this message out and this message that I believe you put on my heart. And I ask that you be so present, so present with people in the room. Because we are in a time where it's not as easy as it once was. Life is not as easy as it once was. And... We're going to see awful quickly what Jesus meant when he said those who try to hang on to their life will lose it. Those who give up their life for the kingdom of heaven's sake will find it. He wasn't talking about dying. He wasn't talking about giving up our life. Lord, he was talking about not trying to, not not making things of this life more important than you. Not trying to hang on to the day-to-day life. But instead living life to the fullest, to please you and walk with you and be present with you every step, every moment of every day. And I thank you, Lord, and praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles and turn over to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah is sort of in the middle, pretty much in the middle. Today's message is called Victory in the Kingdom. But, uh, you know, before we get into that, you know, I really thought that what Tim shared with us last week about casting our cares upon the Lord was much needed. Wasn't that good? You ought to turn to your neighbor and say, that was so good I can hardly stand it. So casting your cares upon the Lord is so vital in these times that we're living in because when you become aware of something going on in your life or in the world at large and it begins to trouble you, when you cast that care upon the Lord, you can rest assured knowing that He is working on it. Because God is aware of everything that's going on right now. And He is not at a loss as to how He should handle it. He is not wondering what He should do. He is at work. Remember, Jesus said, my father is always working. So am I. And then for our part, God tells us to pray and ask him to send laborers into the harvest, to pray for rulers and all who are in authority, to take every thought captive to Jesus, to submit to God and resist the devil, to be worried and anxious for nothing, but in every situation to pray with thanksgiving, making your requests known To God. He expects us to make our requests known to Him. Even though He already knows what they are, He wants to hear you ask Him. And He wants you to ask Him to move in the earth, to change things on your behalf, to change all these going on, goings on that we see, you know. He, he, in, in, you know, 
as we've seen, we've talked about the end times many times, you know, there, there is going to be a great tribulation and things of that nature. But to the extent of those things really depends on the church and the extent of the revival that we can see in the earth depends on the church. Are we willing to, uh, to witness to people about who Jesus is? I mean, imagine if the churches across the nation did this. That's why, you know, I've been praying for revival for decades. I, I, a couple weeks ago, I was praying for revival, and God told me, now's the time to start crying out to the churches for revival. You've cried out to me for revival. That wasn't wrong. But now it's time that the church does their part in this. Amen. And, you know, uh, it's important that as you, as you ask God for these things, and you, 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 when you start by asking for the things that he has said in the word that you can ask for, then he began to stir your heart, and you look, and you and he'll show you what what you should what you should be also begin to ask him for uh, elsewhere or in addition to because Paul said we don't know how we should pray or what we should pray for as we ought. That's why the Holy Spirit makes uh, intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered, and that's of course talking about um, uh, speak you know speaking and praying in other tongues, which we should be doing. You know, if you do, if you don't, then just ask Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and. There you are. But uh, doing this, you know, praying in this manner, interceding, uh, you know, especially first, before we do that, we need to cast our cares and anxiety upon the Lord. Because when we do that, that makes it possible to do the rest without panicking. Amen. Especially with so many becoming concerned with what's going on and attributing all these things that we see happening to the end times. People are saying, well, I know we're in the end times now. Well, we've been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. But uh, we are in an escalating point. That's true. Which is really why I felt in my heart it was time to talk about the end times in the first place. Because where there is anxiety about the end times, there is a lack of instruction about the end times. And while I believe that uh, most of us here know many of these things already, by talking about it, it raises our awareness of it so we can better answer those around us who are in fear so that we can plant seeds of instruction in them as well. And, you know, growing up in the church, I, uh, you know, and it's important to be diligent to do that. You know, I, I love how that, that song said, um, with faith to sow. You know, uh, and that just, that struck me that, you know, when a farmer goes out to sow, because Jesus talked about preaching the word, uh, he likened that to sowing seed, scattering seed. And when a farmer goes out and he scatters seed, he has no doubt in his mind. He has faith. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing on it. He looks at the seed, whatever seed he's, he's planting, and there's nothing about that seed that screams out to him to plant this and there will be uh, growth as a result of it. He sows in faith. He scatters seed with faith that he will have a harvest, he will have a crop. And so we can't be afraid that no one will listen to what we have to say about Christ. We have to sow in faith. <laughs> and, uh, you know, be diligent in doing that. Because, you know, growing up in the church, like I was about to say, I, I, I was always aware in my heart that I wasn't as diligent to seek the Lord about things as I could have been. Or, I could say it this way, I wasn't as diligent to seek the Lord about things as he was willing for me to be. Many are deceived into thinking that God doesn't want us to talk to him. And so they never even make it to the decision about whether they're going to be diligent in seeking God. See, there's a difference between seeking God and seeking God with diligence. That, that word diligence, that means seeking him even when it's hard to seek him. Even when I'm not hearing right away. Even when I feel like I'm groping in the dark and I can't find him. That's continuing on. Even when it's difficult. How much effort am I going to put into this? Because let me tell you, growing up in church, I, I had peers coming up with me that left the church. Why? They didn't stir up a passion within themselves to make God the most important one in their life. Instead, they, they, they 
sought other cares of life. Went on looking for other, other things to find meaning. And, you know, I will say that in some people, and this is not, not really a compliment, but in some people, there, some of us seem to have a fortitude about us that we can stay loyal to God even if we aren't stirring ourselves up to seek Him. You know, and I'm just speaking from personal observation now. You know, I, I would say I'm one of those people, you know, I, there was a good portion of my life where I wasn't hardly doing anything with my faith. I hadn't left God, but I wouldn't, I mean... If you could say, I mean, if you took a magnifying glass and said, let's see if we can find what Phil is doing for God or how often Phil is seeking God or how often or, or how diligently he is seeking God, you wouldn't really find much. Just wasn't doing a whole lot. I wasn't out doing wrong things, but I wasn't, I wasn't living the way that God would have me to live. And, uh, you know, I, I, say that that's, I, I say that's not a, a compliment, you know, uh, because Jesus gave a warning in the book of Revelation. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 2 about being lukewarm. Because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He's not looking for lukewarmness. And then, you know, uh, I, I, say, I say that because that lukewarmness, I would say, is... is is the ability to be just be satisfied with a relationship with God that sort of keeps him at arm's length. And then on the other hand, it seems like there are others who, who can't do that. They're either extremely passionate about God and they keep stirring up that passion in themselves. But then if they stop the stirring, they just kind of fade out and stop following Jesus altogether. So, you know, there's all types of people. And uh, those of us who... You know, we ought to be able to identify where am I weak and be strengthened in that area, you know, to please God. And uh, th that just seems to be what happened with many of those that came up in the church with me. And I'm, I'm kind of addressing two different issues at the same time right now. The end times escalation of the conflict between two kingdoms is one of them, one of the things I'm addressing. But I'll, I'll focus on that more later on. The thing I'm really focusing on right now is this issue of diligence in, in seeking God, in seeking his will, and in understanding his motivation, because that's key. If we can get people to understand that first part, that, then half the battle of the end times is won. That's how important the role of diligence toward God is. That willingness to give up personal comfort and choose a zeal for God. Because laziness is just overemphasized comfort. Ooh, that's good. Laziness is just overemphasized comfort. It's taking something good and taking it too far. Because there is too much of a good thing. Except for God. You can never get too much God. But a good example of this idea is, is, uh, is Cain and Abel. You know, Abel took time. If you remember, you, go, you can go back and read about it in Genesis 2. I'm not going to go there. But if you remember, Abel took time to select the best lamb from his flock. And he, he prepared the sacrifice to God with great care. And Cain's sacrifice, the word tells us, was some of the produce he had grown. Maybe it wasn't bad produce, but it does not say that it was Cain's best produce. Perhaps he wasn't lazy in tilling the soil, but he was lazy in his approach to God. It's very clear there was a lack of diligence on Cain's part, and God talked to Cain about it. See, God's always looking to reconcile. That's what this whole mess in the world is, is about right now. God is giving people time to repent. Now, God's advice to Cain came in the form of a question. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain was jealous of Abel. But if you go back and you read it, you'll notice that God didn't even mention Abel's name when he spoke to Cain about it. Did you ever notice that? It's because Abel wasn't the problem. The problem was that Cain wasn't placing enough value on his relationship with God to put forth more than just a bare minimum. And 
Now, don't get me wrong here, because you ask any Christian, are you praying enough? Everyone's going to say, no, I don't feel like I'm praying enough. But the question is not, are you praying enough? The question is, are you passionate about God? Have you chosen to be passionate enough to spend extra time seeking him in prayer? Worshiping him. Just, or just sitting in his presence, just not saying anything. Just saying, God, I'm going to sit in your presence for a while. You know, I kind of think Cain's attitude was like, here you go, God. I'm, I might have been able to find the prized tomato if I would looked hard enough. But, you know, the ground is cursed, so I've been kind of strapped for time. You understand. God wants people to diligently seek him. When people seek God... God won't give them a laundry list of reasons that they don't qualify. And he won't give them a list of people who are in God's club, in, in, in the in crowd of God. You know, people won't find God sitting up in a treehouse somewhere with a sign outside that says, no girls allowed. What God will do when people seek him is reveal Jesus to them. He will reveal his son. Because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. So when people seek the Father alone, he'll point to Jesus. Go through him. Then you come to me. Do you understand that acceptance from God is all-inclusive? God was telling Cain, look, I don't play favorites. You don't need to be your brother. I made you, therefore I want you. Do what you know is right, and I'll accept you. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter if a person is young or old, rich or poor, popular or unpopular. To God, it doesn't matter what race, culture, career, education a person has. If they do well by accepting his son Jesus as Lord, they are accepted, adopted, translated from the kingdom of darkness over to the kingdom of his dear son. Now, we all know Cain did not listen to God's advice. He ended up killing his brother Abel. So God has another conversation with Cain. This one wasn't so pleasant. And that conversation was really a picture of what will happen after that, this grace period, after this time that God has given people in this age to repent, after that time comes to an end. The conversation that you see God have with, Cable, uh, with, Cable, with Cain <laughs> Anyway, Cain, the conversation there, that is a good picture of what it will be like after the end times. Those who have taken God's advice will be in the clear. Those who have not will be in trouble, will be in, will be in danger of hellfire. Most of us know what happened with Cain. Well, I shouldn't say they'll be in danger of hellfire. They haven't accepted Christ. They will be, they will be going to hell. And see, most of us know what happened with Cain. He made this feeble attempt to deny what happened, but God told him, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground that soaked it up. That's a kind of a strange thing, you know, may seem like a strange thing for God to say. Well, what did God mean by that? Nothing can be hidden from me, Cain. It doesn't matter if the ground soaked up the blood. It doesn't matter if you think the evidence of what you did is concealed. You remember when we talked about this in the past, that the tribulation Jesus talked about is a time of pressure from God. Just like God put pressure on Cain to fess up, he will put pressure on the whole world. Sure, there will be pressure on believers in the form of persecution that doesn't come from God, that comes from the, other, the people who are under pressure. We'll be put under, the, under pressure by the people who are being put under pressure by God. See, God will be raising the pressure on the world, unbelievers, to make a decision about whether they're going to accept the one he sent to save them. And I brought us over here to Isaiah 26 because it talks about some of these principles, and it's got some dual fulfillment prophecy in it. Helps if I'm on the right page. Isaiah 26, starting in verse 1. It says, in that day, what day is that? That's, that's the day of the Lord. That's judgment day. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation 
for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Talking about God, trusting in God. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. And if you never heard uh, that name of God before Yah, that's just a short form of Yahweh, which is what um, the name that God gave Moses when Moses said, who should I say sent me? He said, I am that I am, therefore you tell them I am has sent you, that's, that's Yahweh. So Yah is just a short form of that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just a side note. Here, God is using, in these four verses, God is using Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in Judah, as an illustration of his kingdom, a representation of his kingdom. How do we know that? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. He was talking about himself. Notice it says, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. Remember the word, the, in the word Jesus, it says that Jesus went about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Every person who accepts Jesus becomes a part of the kingdom he came to establish in the earth. And his kingdom, for the time being, is a spiritual kingdom that the physical kingdoms of this world do not recognize. Remember, our faith is the evidence of things not seen. Not seen, but very real. Amen. Verse 5. For he brings down, he, God, brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city. It's a different city he's talking about now. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. These two verses bring up God's justice. There are people in high places today that are being influenced and motivated by the Antichrist spirit, which we've talked about several times. If, if you, this is the first uh, message in this series you've seen, you'll want to go back and look at living in the last days, you know, those, uh, you know, just a few uh, last month, I believe that we started this, and you, you'll want to spend some time there. But we're not going to get to talk about that a whole lot today because we've got a different place to go. Um, but these people that are, that are being motivated by the Antichrist spirit, which that spirit is of the devil, and just like Satan, they seek to oppress people and bring them into subjection. But in these verses, God's, uh, God is letting us know that that will not last forever. There's a limited time that they're allowed to do that. On God's day of judgment, he is going to bring down those who promote Satan's agendas in the earth. How do we know that it's that same day, that, that uh, in the day of, God, uh, that day of God's judgment? How do we know that? Because in the very first verse here, it says, in that day, this song will be sung. So it gets down over here, we're talking about the lofty city, which is not, which is not the strong city. The strong city is God's city. The lofty city, you know, is Satan's city. Or in other words, you could, you could say that the strong city in this chapter represents God's kingdom and the lofty city represents Satan's kingdom and it's it's brought down in that day okay so what has happened is the people who are in this city those who dwell on high in that lofty city who have uh, amassed um, they have amassed wealth for themselves through wrongdoing because it says they dwell in a lofty city so they've amassed wealth through the oppression of people and everything they have built for themselves, God will bring it so low that the very ones they oppressed will walk all over it. This is what God is saying here. This is God's plan. He is patient with people, and maybe some of those oppressors will repent before God's wrath comes upon them. I hope so. I hope they do. But God is just, and he's upright. It says so in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, The way of the just is uprightness, O oh, most upright. That's talking about God there. He's the most upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O oh Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. And here's where we get to that diligence again. 
that we talked about. Verse 9. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Now, the Amplified puts that last part of verse 9 and the rest of verse 10 like this. I'll read it to you. For only when your judgments, only when your judgments are in the earth, will the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown compassion and favor, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals unjustly and refuses to see the majesty of the Lord. So he's talking about two different people groups here. There are the inhabitants of the earth that would not have learned righteousness unless God's judgments were present, which is why you go through the book of Revelation and you see God's wrath being poured out. That is so that some of them will be saved, so that some of them will learn righteousness. But there are those who will not, because it says in the very next verse, uh, let grace be shown to the wicked. You know, even, even though grace, even though uh, compassion and favor are shown to the wicked, he will not learn righteousness. So that's how we know there are two different people groups there. Because some people will respond, others will not. Okay? So, there will be people who turn to God when they start to see some of the judgments he's going to bring on the earth. You may remember back when we were going through the story of Moses and the judgments that God brought against the gods of Egypt. If you missed that series, you can get that too. We have all those on video. You can go back and find them. When God told Moses that strangers, well, no, I, let me correct that. I don't think all of them are on video, but most of them are, so you can find some. If not, you can find that on audio. When God told Moses that strangers could draw near and participate in the Passover to become Jews, this is during the whole ten plague, you know, the plagues of Egypt thing, at the very end of that, some of the Egyptians took God up on that offer, and they, they became Jews. They left Egypt along with the Hebrews as part of God's people. But then others in Egypt rejected God's offer and stayed behind in Egypt. Two people groups. That second group can be represented by where we just read in verse 10. Though the wicked is shown compassion and favor, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals unjustly and refuses to see the majesty of God. It's interesting how all this sort of unravels what we see going on in the earth right now. And also what we're about to see going on. When God looks on the world... He doesn't see the divisions that people have made for themselves in race, status, and political view. When God looks at the world, he sees saved or unsaved. He's no respecter of persons. When God's judgments begin to come, many of those unsaved will see the need to become saved. But those who are bent towards staying unsaved, it says, will refuse, refuse to see the majesty of God even though it's right before them, even though there's all this, these judgments coming on the earth and there's these supernatural things happening that could not be generated by man. They will refuse to see it and acknowledge God. They will refuse to acknowledge him. It's not ignorance. It's refusal to acknowledge God. Stubbornness. This is why God said in the word that they are without excuse. No one will go to hell simply because they didn't know. During a person's time on earth, God makes sure they know if they have reached the age of accountability for babies and others who don't know right from wrong. They don't qualify for the age of accountability. So God does not impute sin there. That's just my personal belief about it. But regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, God's not unjust. So it's best to be patient in God's plan as we see how things play out in the earth. Because again, like I said in the beginning of this message, all of this that we see going on is an escalation of the conflict between two spiritual kingdoms. God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. Now, that conflict isn't just starting. It's been going on for a while. Where did it start? Well, on earth, at least, it started in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit against God's will. Because at the moment they sinned, they forfeited the authority God had given them in the earth 
over to the one that they obeyed, and that was Satan. He, he said, eat the fruit, they ate the fruit. This is how Satan gained the authority that he has in the earth. And ever since, his kingdom has been in conflict with God's. Because from the context of what happened next, if you go back and you read it, you see that Adam and Eve were restored to God. They came back to him. But the conflict went on through their children, Cain and Abel, continued on. One of the things God told Cain before things got out of hand was, sin crouches at the door, but you should subdue it and be its master. Cain chose not to subdue sin, but instead he yielded to it and killed his brother. And that shows us that anyone who wanted to be a part of God's kingdom had to turn from sin. And anyone who yielded to sin was by default a part of Satan's kingdom. There's no other kingdom for them to belong to. So down through the ages, the conflict between these two kingdoms has gone on. Now, to be a little technical, later on God spoke to the prophet that he was going to give Jesus the throne. So we see a transfer of the kingdom from the father to the son. And you can read all about that in the book of Revelation, but that's a whole other subject. For now, it's best just to focus on the conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And now that conflict is becoming more prominent in these last days. And that escalation will continue until it comes to a head at the end of the tribulation. But what is important for the Christian to remember is that this conflict is not about which kingdom will triumph over the other. Satan and his kingdom are already defeated. He's just delusional about it, and he's trying to take as many people down with him as he can. And you say, well, that's spiteful. Well, what more would you expect of the devil? He's a spiteful person and a sore loser. So he will try to steal, kill, and destroy, even though he hasn't the right. Satan has no right to attack us. Jesus took any authority Satan had when he rose from the dead and took the keys of hell. And then uh, Jesus' kingdom will come into completion when he returns. But until now, we're in the age of grace where we're being his witnesses and winning people to Christ over to his kingdom. This is why, but see, the attacks that, that uh, come from Satan, this is why we take authority over him when it's necessary. It's not something we have to do every day. If it were, Jesus would have said so. Jesus' primary concern was to, to tell us to be his witnesses in the earth, telling people about him while watching for his return. If you read the Gospels, you can, you, you can find that he talked about the kingdom of heaven a lot. A lot. Go ahead and turn with me over to Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew, first book of the New Testament. So much to talk about in so little time. Matthew 11. And we're going to look at verse 11 in Matthew 11. So this is Jesus speaking here. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this is kind of a confusing passage. Uh, first of all, why is the kingdom of heaven suffering now? He says, because until the, from the days of John the Baptist until now. It's because John the Baptist was the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord's coming. And when Jesus came was when that transfer of the kingdom from God the Father to God the Son began. That's what Jesus meant by that. Now, the other confusing part is a little more complicated. What does it mean when it says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force? Well, it could be talking about persecution. If you, if you want to interpret it that way, you can if you'd like. But to me, there's a problem with that uh, because that contradicts everything else that Jesus has said about God's kingdom because how could God's kingdom be taken by the wicked? No, I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. Now, this is my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. If you look in the text, the meaning of the word used for violence is to force, that is, reflexively crowd oneself into 
or passively to be seized. I'll say that again because that's a little confusing. The meaning of that word, that, that word violence, suffers violence because suffers is not, is not exactly a part of that phrase. That's just the translators added that for clarity. But it says, uh, but, the, but in the text, that word violence, the word translated violence means to force, that is reflexively crowd oneself into or passively to be seized, to be seized. And then the word used for violent, like the violent take it by force, that word it means a forcer that is figuratively energetic. And that last word translated take it by force actually means to seize. And I know it's a, that, that that's a lot, but you can look up the meaning of those words on your own in a concordance. But when I put all those words together, and again, this is my opinion, but when I put all those words together, I take what Jesus is saying here to mean this. The kingdom of heaven forcefully crowds itself in to be seized. And the energetic forcer seizes it. Say, what does that mean? Well, what I'm getting at is this. When Jesus came, his kingdom forcefully crowded itself into this world where Satan's kingdom was sitting comfortably. Just kind of wedged itself in there. When Jesus came. And those who energetically respond to Jesus' message seize on to his kingdom by accepting Jesus and being taken out of Satan's kingdom and brought into God's kingdom. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Last week, Tim said what that meant to him was that we can take hold of it somehow. And each time a person gets saved, Satan's kingdom decreases. And God's kingdom increases. God's kingdom is here to stay. Tribulation or no tribulation. Antichrist or no antichrist. Mark of the beast or no mark. Doesn't matter. His kingdom is here to stay. Since Jesus came, ever since Jesus came, Satan's influence has been weaker. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ has been gaining momentum. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Why did he use the phrase gates of hell? Why is the church on Satan's doorstep? Because when Jesus came on the scene, God's kingdom crowded itself into right up against what Satan thought he had control of, and it's been expanding ever since. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? Even through these trials the church is about to face, there's reason to have joy. And walk in peace. So keep praying and interceding. Praying in the spirit and taking authority in Jesus' name over the evil that is influencing men in high places. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is restraining. The Antichrist can't be revealed until he who restrains is taken out of the way. The things the devil are, is trying to push, which is complete dominance that he wants, is being restrained. By what? By the Holy Spirit, through the church, through the actions that we take. And diligence is key. Amen. So, on the one side, praying, pray in the Spirit. Take, and, and take, your, take authority in Jesus' name over things that God shows you. Anything He shows you, you have authority over. I'm talking about Things uh, uh, in 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 you know in the, he the heavenly place here. Let me let me turn over to uh, Ephesians just real quick. I believe I have time to do that. Ephesians chapter six. Where is that? Here we go. So listen to this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You understand people are not the enemy? We do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That might sound overwhelming, but not if you are strong in the Lord and and in the power of his might. This is why we take authority in Jesus' name. And I don't want you to get overboard with this. Don't, don't start taking authority over every single thing you see and get over into the, in, off into left field. Because if God shows you something, that means he wants you to take authority over that. Okay? If you're praying and suddenly you become aware, hey, there's something I need to take authority over. There's, you know, Satan's trying to push in this area over here. So you take authority over it and you move on. You notice Jesus, when, when he cast out demons, it says he, cast out, he just cast them out with a word and moved on about his business. He didn't put a focus on what Satan's doing. So don't worry about that. But what I'm telling you is that in this time, be spirit-led in your prayers. Pray. Pray for everything, like I said at the beginning. Pray for everything you know in the word that God has said you can pray for, leaders and all those in authority. Pray for laborers to be sent in the harvest. Be diligent in these things. And if, he, if God gives you something to pray for as you're doing that, pray for it. And then on the other side of things, and this is probably even more important, because the church has been pretty good about witnessing to people. But this is the other side, I mean, or about, about praying. Maybe some churches are better about praying, other churches are better about witnessing. But when you are out and about, remember every opportunity that God presents to you to win someone to Christ is a chance to see Satan's kingdom grow weaker and God's kingdom expand. Amen. Well, we'll talk more about these things later on, get more into the end times on a different day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can be strong in you and in the power of your might. We don't rely on ourselves. We do not lean on our own understanding. We pray as we feel led to, and we witness as we feel led to, and we scatter seed in faith. We thank you, Lord, and praise you. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, be blessed you all, and I will see you soon.